wherever you find yourself, in our case, it's technical users, which is a different learning curve, always make time to understand them wherever they're at. So don't be afraid of learning. In my case, it looked at me doing a software engineering bootcamp. It looks at our lead visual designer picking up a Python course. But what it means is that ultimately we can communicate better with our users, which is the important thing at the end of the day. So really being passionate about learning about your users is the last one. And that would be the critical point for all teams. Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we meet Yatunde Dada, product manager, engineer, and more recently, finalist for Young Digital Leader of the Year. We talk about her background in engineering, her evolution into a product manager, and how her team's ultimate aim is to ensure their end users have no reason not to use their product. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode. Why don't we start with an introduction? Tell us who you are uh, and what you did before you came to QB. Sure. So my name is Yatunde Dada, and I'm a product manager at QB. My background is a bit interesting. Um, I started off in mechanical engineering in South Africa and did actually work as a design engineer. I think the only thing that I've really been put on this earth to do is design cool things. <laughs> Doesn't matter if those things are cool or useful for anyone, but designing <laughs> cool things is what I do. But ultimately, I'm driven by second thought, which is that they should actually be useful for people. So working as a design engineer was an incredible experience for me because my things were used in wind tunnels um, as heat transfer devices. But I also realized that I wasn't really impacting people's lives. So I decided to go apply that same design thinking and that love for designing things in the nonprofit space and worked with Engineers Without Borders for a while. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was really cool. Um, so Engineers Without Borders in South Africa works with a lot of student organizations and universities to help them create interventions for communities. But there's this whole understanding that, firstly, the students have to overcome, which is they think that any solution is acceptable because people really don't have anything else, but that's not the actual case. I remember one challenge where the students were designing a solar lamp, which was quite expensive. So we looked at cost as an immediate problem. But also, it had a one-hour battery life. <laughs> so when they were busy saying that, no, obviously the community members will accept this because they have no other choice, that wasn't actually true. Community members had access to candles, paraffin lamps, which were dangerous, and darkness if right. they had no choice. So I asked the students to go and test the lamp for two weeks because the, the target group was students and children who um, obviously needed to study by night. They came back after two weeks and they're like, well, we have to redesign the lamp because they couldn't study by night with this lamp Yeah, because the battery life was so short and it wasn't a very bright light. So really being able to help students make, I think, useful products for communities was like very important to me. Another thing that I did try to look at was what is the design of an Engineers Without Borders that is financially sustainable look like? We didn't quite get that model right. So when I left... I went to another nonprofit to try and work on the same or a similar problem. I went to a project kind of focused on how do we incubate micro and small entrepreneurs 
and there were some people in my portfolio included like a grandma who owned a chicken farm and wanted to build a successful business so that she could (laughs) support her entire family. And uh, people really have different challenges. I remember one time her saying, my insistence that she paid herself a salary meant that she couldn't actually take money out of the business to for instance, pay for her, you know, her grandkids' extra school lunches. And she was now struggling with this whole dynamic of everyone wanted money from the business. So people have really interesting challenges in a way to project, but it really did dial in for me that design thinking can be applied in many different areas. Sure. This was design of business and design of interventions, but that's still applied. After still not figuring out what is a responsible business look like, one which makes money and does good, I landed up at a bank. Okay. <laughs> you, you say that like it's not necessarily the best thing in the world. Why, why is that? <laughs> completely, completely 180 flip um, from what I was doing before working in the nonprofit space. But that was driven by a learning opportunity. I'd been learning Python in my spare time over the weekends, but I really felt it, uh, found it hard to make it stick because I never really practiced, well, beyond the project work that I used to do, I never really had an opportunity to practice it in my work. Okay. So when one of my friends spoke about this opportunity to be a data product manager at Barclays in South Africa, I was like, okay, cool. Do you get to code? And she's like, yeah, well, this role you do. (laughs) So I was like, okay, great. Um, So I eventually got the job and was immediately thrown into not Python, but R and Scala. (laughs) Wow. Helping data scientists kind of like, Uh, helping data scientists think through how we build machine learning products actually for internal clients. So one of the projects I worked on, for instance, was who of my, um, from HR, who of my new joiners are going to be leaving in the next few months so that I can actually institute some sort of intervention to stop them from going. Crikey, okay. So you look at all, you now have to figure out what data sources am I going to be pulling in? What is our modeling approach going to look like here? And then what does the product actually look like? Do you need an email Mm -hmm. that comes every month with a list of names as the, you know, the MVP for this? So you can phone people and try work out like how to, how do you fix things? Or do you need a dashboard um, as the end result? Yeah. And then the other problem that we had was obviously how do we feed those results back into the system so that we know that we're, we're getting more accurate and we're feeding the results back in so that, you know, the intervention was successful. Mm. Um, So we used to do cool projects like that. The other one I did in the bank, which was pretty cool, was it was called Omnichannel back in the day, misnamed. But what it looked like was for the first time, the bank seeing all of their data stitched together across all customers, which allowed us to do quite a few other use cases on top of that data because we had that few. This is an amazing journey thus far. And I I know you also managed to squeeze in an MBA before you joined QB. What was the rationale behind doing an MBA? So for this one, being an engineer, I actually wanted to have more credibility in the business side, on the business side of the world. I'd done kind of like, with all of this, I was busy doing like other startup things with my brother. So I kind of had like my foray into like the startup world, but I never really felt like my experiences were validated and also felt sometimes that I had missing information. Obviously, the the internet is great Mm. for learning new things, but I really wanted a way to say, I have a formalized education here. I've got some structure. I'll know who to call if I'm not good at something and someone else here is, for instance, accounting. Never going to be good at that, but I know who is. So if I ever need accounting help, I know who to call. So that was one reason. The other reason specific to the Said Business School program is that they focus on responsible business as it's at its core. So a business that is able to do good while making money 
And there are quite a few case studies that are embedded into the program, and even our lecturers themselves have um, experience in this side. For instance, one of our lecturers, he helped write the FICA, which is like the kind of like the um, standards used to assess accounting things. <laughs> accounting things. Accounting sounds things. sounds specific. Go on. Yeah, and he's helping writing a green standard for companies as well. Okay. Or one of our marketing lecturers who's applying his understanding of social networks to break the dark web. So you have all these, you know, really cool ways of how do we apply, how do we fix the planet and how do we fix social problems through business, which I was interested in. And yeah, that was my my rationale specifically for why an MBA at that time and then also why the specific school. But what I did know going in was that I still wanted to be a product manager coming out. And, I and still why is that? Why is that? T- tell me about why you wanted to be a product manager coming out. Sure. Because listening to your story, you know, the interesting code, Python, I mean, it, it sounds like an engineer's story. You know, it's a, a problem solving through engineering. What, why was it that product management was interesting to you? It's actually, it wasn't even just product management. It was, I wanted to stay in tech, whatever that model looked like. And product management was one channel that I was exploring. And the other one was actually going full technical because I really like to code. I stayed coding through my degree, doing whatever project I could in Python, just because I could. And so when I was looking now at possible careers, the one avenue was that I stayed product management, which is partially what led me to QB, or I went technical, which was also another path that led me to QB. So I met with Andrew Fife, found him at a Quantum Black event at the University of Oxford, where they were busy talking about XAI, explainable AI. Um, And I was like, wow, this place seems cool going to talk to them um and shout out to andrew fife there shout out. doing a good job at our recruitment events yeah <laughs> go on and he allowed me to explore both channels either going on to the data engineering track or going on to the product management one in the end i settled for the product management one because i realized it was a better fit for all of my skill sets and yeah that's how i landed up at qb straight after the program ended wow okay So tell us about the product you're working on within Quantum Black Labs. Sure. So I work on something called Kedro. Kedro helps standardize the way that data scientists work so that it's easier for them to collaborate while they produce production-ready code. So this is code that is effectively useful and can create business value because it's easy to deploy. And when you joined, who were the intended end users of Kedro? At that point, we had adoption on the machine learning engineering side and massive adoption on the data engineering side, but we're still struggling with the data scientists adopting the tool. I think there's something about, and this is something that is known with Kedro, it's easier if you have a software engineering background or a computer science background to pick up the tool because those concepts make sense. Mm. But for people that come from mathematical backgrounds or you're maybe a physicist or maybe you were completely self-taught in data science, you don't really have that software engineering learning which is a bit of a learning curve when you pick up a new tool. Right. So the initial challenge was driving more adoption amongst our data scientists. How did you approach that challenge? For me, this probably fits in like my product management principles, which is like, I'll give you no reason why you can't use the tool, why you can't use the product. Okay, you have that, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. To just <laughs> just unpack that. Your, your, this is your product management principle. Okay, and and, and just explain to me and to us what that product management principle is. Cool. What it means is that we focus heavily on negative feedback on Kedro and try and fix the reasons why people cannot use it. 
whatever that situation looks like. I think the first one we had to tackle when I arrived was window support because we had obviously Quantum Black teams working with McKinsey teams, MacBooks and Windows, um, Lenovo computers, and our McKinsey colleagues couldn't use Kedro because it was so buggy on the Windows system. It was developed on a you know, Mac machine. So one of the first things was Windows support um, in order to make that one easier. We overcame that hurdle. And then there was other questions around like, well, we need support for Docker. We keep asking you support for Docker, so fix that. Well, we like the product, but we can't use it on our client engagements. We fix that with open source. So we just keep solving reasons why users really struggle to use the tool. I think when I spoke about our data science adoption problem, a lot of that we actually had to investigate with, okay, the data scientists aren't using the tool. We need to find out why. Well, it doesn't really fit into their experimentation workflow. So increased support for Jupyter Notebooks so that it was easier for them to transition from the experimentation side in Jupyter Notebooks all the way into the Kedra project template. So we just keep solving reasons why it's it's challenging to use Kedra. Right now we're at a, a space of it's challenging to use because it's a new framework that you have to learn. And we're now looking at ways that how can we ease that learning curve um, so that you can pick up the tool much faster. Right. That's fascinating. I guess most products start with a problem they're trying to solve. But what you're describing is new emerging problems that you have to solve to drive even further adoption. Does a constant focus on these emerging problems create any exhaustion amongst the team? The way that we've done user research on the team has actually really made it real for the engineers. We don't really have much design support on the Kedro team. So what that's meant is that when we talk about user interviews, our engineers are leading the user interviews. And when we talk about synthesis of the interviews, our engineers are synthesizing those interviews. So they're very close to the users and the problems that they're facing. And I don't know if it's necessarily a negative thing when we see the challenge of we need to solve this problem, why the users aren't using the tool. They see it as an opportunity to gain more users. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting framing. Mm. So it's not a problem, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And that yeah. opportunity being solved results in more users, which mm -hmm. means... And happier users Yeah, too. happy users. Yeah. yeah, no, that's brilliant. Right, cool. Could you give us a breakdown of what a typical working day looks like for you? So for, for anyone that's interested in product management or working in uh, an environment like QB Labs, what does an average day look like for Yetu, the product manager? Okay, so Yetu is a product manager, and then I guess this actually leads to all the other things that I do within QB and that I've been focusing on. But a typical product manager day for me at 10 o'clock, We've got stand-ups, and I say two stand-ups because we've got a Kedra core team which focuses on the Python side of the library. We go through the Jira board, and it's basically each person on the team will say, I'm working on what, uh, whatever task, and if you have any challenges, you'll raise them there. We do the same with the Kedra front-end team, the Kedra lab team, and they talk through in a similar way what they're up to. We might have, if it's Monday, I'll have a session with the tech lead, um, Ivan Danov on Kedro, where we talk through, it might be OKRs, it might be thoughts around our roadmap, it might be organizational changes that we have to discuss and look at how we disseminate that information to the team. And once we, we always use this meeting as kind of like, it was his idea, a great source of alignment um, between product and uh, I guess the, the tech side of, of Kedro. After that, we go straight into sprint planning with the Kedro Python side of the team, where we map out exactly what we want to accomplish over the next two weeks. From there, we go straight into technical design because you might pick up an item there 
that isn't well defined in terms of technical requirements or there are a lot of questions around like how this should be designed and you get to kind of like talk through those discussions in the hour that follows. And in the remaining hour that follows that, we do the same for the front end team. So sprint planning and technical design if required. And that's essentially a Monday in, in the product management world. But because I do so many other things, <laughs> it's like, uh, if, if it was just a standard product management job that I would, I would be doing, it would obviously be how well do we fit into business objectives with our roadmap? Are we playing towards where Hebe Labs, Quantum Black and McKinsey are going? It's constantly asking questions of that of our roadmap and prioritizing it accordingly. We use the RICE matrix prioritization method for this. It's reach, impact, confidence, and effort. It's done with the entire team, and it's a very boring session, <laughs> but everyone must understand why we've selected certain scores. <laughs> and then it would be then creating the user stories and then working with Avon to break down what some of the technical requirements are and how that impacts on the user experience. We also do a ton of user research before we start actually working on themes. So there is a large discovery process where we spend a lot of time interviewing our users and trying to look for alternative data points to help support how they're using a current tool. And then we do do, we do have a very robust user testing set, well, user testing methodology now where the team has been really great at creating low fidelity prototypes made that look like code and show the user how they would interact with something. So we do have that quite, which would be spread out, I guess, throughout the week. As part, of our, uh, as part of our design process. I also work on the diversity and inclusion forum as well. <laughs> so there's quite a bit of work there too. And also work on, I guess, how we think about open source and patenting throughout the firm. And then I also sit on the firm's technology council, which looks at how do we incorporate like new technologies, quantum computing or software 2.0, um, all these kind of like trendy um, technologies and what impact will they have on business, understanding that, and then also how much attention should we pay to them as they, they progress and grow and develop. One of the guiding principles behind all our work in Quantum Black Labs, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, is the importance of collaboration. Successful products are built by teams, not necessarily individuals. What tips would you have for aspiring product managers to enable them to create a healthy and collaborative environment for product development? I think with um, product managers, one of the things that is maybe a part of our role is that you are flexible to different ways of working, whatever that looks like. I think things that have worked well on the Ketra team include things, close collaboration with the engineers, specifically the tech lead, Ivan Danov on the team that has been very successful. It's also an understanding that you also have to do roles outside of your, t your typical remit, like being an engineer that's amazing at writing documentation or an engineer that leads user research projects. So really having, I think, learned empathy because you step into other, uh, other fields and other roles is one of the things that really does help there. But beyond that, I, I think one of the ways that we have had to work well together is full understanding of we could never do each other's roles whatever that looked like. So there's this, this, this ultimate, it's a fear and a freedom, a complete let go, where you realize that there, there are members on my team where I could never, ever step into their role and, and do their work for them. I think if we compare that to a typical strate or stra strategy consulting project where you were a BA, then you were an EM, and then you were eventually a partner, at every single level, you have an understanding of what could be done in that role, especially when you work with people that are just like you. 
so you could step in and do the deck, even if you were a partner. You could step in and do the Excel spreadsheet for, for the client. When you're building product, that's not the case. I could never step in and be like, well, I'm going to go write some tests for, for this new feature that I've just developed. Or I could never step into the designer shoes and be like, well, I'm just going to create a high fidelity prototype to go test with our users. There's no way I could ever, ever think of doing those things. And this is why I, I have so much joy with trusting the team to just be really amazing at what they do. So really creating spaces for also the team to excel in their specific areas is therefore important and giving them necessary time for, for instance, long stretches for coding that are uninterrupted by meetings or trying to bunch meetings if you can onto one day or, you know, next to each other so that there's long stretches left for code is one thought. In enabling the designer on our team to have access to all the users that they need to talk to as well um, so that they can be successful with their user testing and, and, and conduct those things without you is another. So really just, uh, I think, one, that understanding that you cannot do their job at all and you really just need to give each team member the, the right tools for them to be successful. So trust is clearly very important. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting what you said, that it's not necessarily uh, the product manager who has a specific way of working that needs to be considered. It's that the product manager needs to be flexible to everyone else's. Mm -hmm. For anyone that's listening who's keen to explore the discipline of product management more, what's the one book or resource you'd recommend they check out? So the book I would recommend here is one called The Mom Test. I forget who the the author's name is for this one, but this is my favorite book for trying to understand how you talk to users when you're trying to, you know, do your user research because your users will lie to you because they don't want to hurt your feelings. That's the premise of the book, but it's called the mom test because you should be able to get even useful insights from your mom, even though she doesn't want to break your heart and tell you that your idea sucks. So I definitely start with the mom test as an overall framing for how do I talk to users, um, especially in situations where you have a lean team and don't have access to a design researcher that can help guide you alongside there. And then there are a host of like really good product management books that you can check out. One that's frequently recommended in QB is Inspired, How to Build Great Tech Products, which uh, I think paints a great picture for not only how to build great products, but how to do that in an an enterprise situation as well, which is what inevitably you might find yourself in. What are the problems of building enterprise products? Awesome. Thank you very much, Yetu. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tillman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Rettig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com.